0: I see some new faces this morning. Uh, to those of you who are new, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the ministers here. I'd be delighted to meet you after the service if you would do the privilege of introducing yourself to me. I want to add to some of Stacy's comments about uh, the season of Epiphany at the beginning. There are seven Sundays in the season of Epiphany. Today is the first of them. And this season begins with Jesus' baptism, and then it ends with Jesus' transfiguration. That baptism, transfiguration is kind of the bookends of this thing. And those two scenes are the only two times in the Gospels where we actually get to hear God the Father speaking directly from heaven to us. At the baptism, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And in the transfiguration, the only other time he speaks directly. It's this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So Epiphany is one of these seasons where Jesus is revealed to us, but not just in normal ways. Jesus is revealed to us by God the Father himself. We are invited to hear and to share God's perspective and his passion for his son, his knowledge of and his pleasure in his son. Frederick Dale Bruner put it this way. He said, the one fact that God the Father wants believers to know, above all other facts of life, is just how much we have in Jesus. This morning, in particular, we're invited to contemplate the baptism of our Lord. And Jesus' baptism is kind of a sort of ordination for ministry. It's God preparing him for the days and commissioning him for the days to come. But even more than that, it is a revelation of the Trinitarian reality that shapes and defines Jesus' life and ministry. You hear of the vocation of the Son. You catch a vision of the Holy Spirit descending upon Him. And you hear the voice of the Father speaking to Him. The baptism of Jesus is a revelation of the Trinitarian reality that shapes and defines His life and His ministry. But I think Matthew also wants to see this baptism as a revelation of the reality that we are immersed in when we ourselves are baptized. So the only two times in Matthew, the two times in Matthew where he's most explicitly Trinitarian in his language, are the two times where baptism is talked about. So one in Jesus' baptism, and then at the very end of the Gospel in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, risen from the dead, appears to his disciples and says, Behold, all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to see that the Holy Trinity has a special affinity for baptism. That the Holy Trinity delights in baptism. We, in baptism, are immersed into the Trinitarian reality. It comes to shape and define our lives and our ministries. And that reality is revealed to us in the baptism of Jesus himself. So what I want to do with you is just kind of look at that Trinitarian reality a little bit. The vision of, or the vocation of the Son, the vision of the Spirit, and the voice of the Father. The vocation of the Son. Look at verses 13 to 15 with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus is the one initiating his own baptism. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to be baptized by me? And notice Jesus' response. All four Gospels give us an account of Jesus' baptism, but only Matthew tells us why Jesus wanted to be baptized. Jesus says this, Let it be so now, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Why does Jesus want to be baptized? Because he wants to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. Jesus didn't just come for his own righteousness. He came for the sake of others. He's interested in the righteousness of other people. He's doing this baptism in order to do something for others. But the question is, what in the world is righteousness? Significant word. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus also says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A bit scarier, Jesus even says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So whatever righteousness is, it seems that righteousness is absolutely crucial to the teaching of Jesus. And it's absolutely crucial to the vision that Jesus has for his followers and his disciples. And it's not just Jesus' vision. This is a vision that has deep roots in the Old Testament. It's central to the Old Testament. A reformed theologian named Gerhard von Rod. I wouldn't recommend trusting everything he says. He puts in his first volume of his Old Testament theology, he has this wonderful quote about, the, about righteousness in the Old Testament, Hebrew word zedekah, and he says this. He says, there is absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as zedekah. It is the standard not only for humanity's relationship to God, but also for their relationships to one another, reaching right down to the most petty details and wranglings. Indeed, it is even the standard for humanity's relationship to the animals and the created natural world. And then he summarizes saying this, Zedekah can be described without more ado as the highest value in human life, that upon which all life rests when it is properly ordered. Righteousness is key to what it means for human beings to flourish in God's world under his care in his kingdom. Von Rod goes on to suggest that righteousness in the Bible is not merely a matter of like adherence to a set of moral codes and moral laws, although it definitely includes that ethical aspect. But he says there's something bigger to righteousness. Righteousness is about faithfulness to the claims of a relationship. Faithfulness to the claims of a relationship. Righteousness is right relatedness. So consider the the Ten Commandments with me, for example. Ten Commandments aren't just an arbitrary set of moral laws. They're God stipulating what faithfulness to a covenant relationship with him and others looks like. So, for example, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because that would be a violation of faithfulness to Yahweh. You shall not commit adultery. Why? Because that would be a violation of faithfulness to your spouse. You shall not steal or bear false witness or covet. Why? Because that would be a violation of faithfulness to your neighbor. So to state things maybe more negatively, humanity's sin problem is not merely a matter of breaking moral laws and and codes, although that's true, but it's a matter of being unfaithful to the relationships in which God has placed us. So when Jesus comes and he says he wants to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, he is saying that he has come to be faithful to the very relationships in which we have been unfaithful. In baptism, Jesus enters into the waters of repentance. He joins penitent sinners, not because he needs to repent of any sin, but because he identifies identifies with them in their sinfulness and in their unfaithfulness. And then he emerges from those waters and he lives the very faithfulness that they have failed to live on their behalf. Notice how after the baptism, Jesus arises and it says the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And you guys know what that's symbolic of. That's the 40 years in which Israel was tempted in the wilderness. But notice how those 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, Jesus does precisely what Israel failed to do and what we failed to do. He remains devoted and faithful to the Lord in every temptation that comes his way. It's as if Jesus is retracing the steps of Israel. It's as if he's retracing the steps of our life and he's living the sort of human life that is fully flourishing and fully alive in relation to God and others that God designed us to live, and he's doing it on our behalf. Our baptism is a sort of ordination to righteousness as well. In baptism, we are buried with the death of Christ, dying to sin, and we are raised with the life and the faithfulness and the righteousness of Christ, alive to God, to present the members of our bodies as a living sacrifice, as instruments of holiness and righteousness. The marvelous thing about baptism is that when we are baptized, we are united with Christ in his faithfulness and in his righteousness. His righteousness becomes ours and we are invited to participate in his right relatedness in all of its fullness and all of its beauty. So baptism in this beautiful picture of Jesus in his vocation, the vocation of the Son coming to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf and then inviting him to join us in that righteousness. But how will we be sustained in that vocation? (laughs) Because I don't know about you, it, it sounds so marvelous in theory, but when I just think about the thoughts that have crossed my mind the last week, the ways I've responded to my children the last week, the ways I've made certain decisions at work the last week, I go, where's the right relatedness in some of those things? I don't have what it takes. I'm so thankful for the Sermon on the Mount that it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm Lord, I'm poor in spirit, so what do you have for me? What's going to sustain me in this? And it's the same things that God gave to Jesus to sustain him in his vocation. It's the vision of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, and it's the voice of the Father, his pleasure. Right relatedness is enabled and empowered and animated by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. One of the things I love about this painting, which I'll mention a little bit later as well, is the way in which the Holy Spirit at the very top is depicted with such suggestiveness and actually gentleness as it comes to descend and rest on Jesus, to guide him into the wilderness and to empower him in his faithfulness. See, baptism is so much about the gift of the Holy Spirit as it is about the faithfulness of Christ. In an ecumenical statement in the early 80s entitled Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, once again, I wouldn't recommend everything it says. But I do think they have a good thing to say here. So let me quote them. In God's work of salvation, the paschal mystery of Christ's death and resurrection is inseparably linked with the Pentecostal gift of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, participation in Christ's death and resurrection is inseparably linked with the receiving of the Spirit. Baptism, in its full meaning, signifies and affects both participation in Christ's work and reception of Christ's Spirit. End quote. It is the Spirit of God who empowers us for faithfulness. It is the Spirit of God who assures us that we are children of God. It is the Spirit of God who convicts convicts us of sin and unrighteousness when we are out of sync with him and his kingdom. Thank God for that. It is the Spirit of God who leads us into the truth and shows us when we're in error. Thank God for that. It is the Spirit of God who comforts us in our sorrow so that we know we are not alone. He is the paraclete. He is the one who is called alongside. He is with. Thank God for that. It is the Spirit who strengthens us and gifts us for ministry in his kingdom. Notice what the Spirit of God guides and enables Jesus to do in the wilderness. He enables Jesus to resist abusing power. We need a lot of that. He enables Jesus to remain content with what God has provided. We need that too. He enables Jesus to remember and understand and cherish the word of God. And not allow Satan to twist it. We need that too. And he enables Jesus to be secure in his identity as God's son. We need that too. And that identity is affirmed through the voice of the Father. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Let's listen to those words one more time. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right relatedness is enabled and empowered and enabled not and animated not only by the presence of the Holy Spirit, but by the pleasure of the Father. In baptism, we, like Jesus, receive affirmation of the Father's pleasure and love, and we hear the voice of adoption. Jesus was not adopted in his baptism. He's not becoming the Father's Son at this moment. From eternity to eternity, he is the Son. This is a revelation of his Sonship to us by the Father and an affirmation of its goodness and its glory on our behalf. But in baptism, we hear the voice of adoption, that we are brought to share this sonship in some mysterious way with Jesus by grace. We enter into his relationship to the Father in some sort of way, and we become an heir to all the blessing and the goodness and the glory and the life and the riches that God has for his son. It's what Ephesians 1.5 talks about. I mentioned last week, and it's worth quoting again. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. I think it's really important for us to dwell on this reality for just a moment. Megan's father, who's on vestry, she gave me permission to share the story, She said that when she was a teenager growing up, whenever she would uh, be ready to leave the house and hang out with her friends and go somewhere, her father would stop her and say to her, remember who you are. It's kind of simple words, but they're orienting words. Remember who you are. And I think that's what these words are intended to be in some sense. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. They orient us. They ground us and they root us in the reality of who we are before God. And I think it's this knowledge of our identity of God's pleasure and that encourages us to live righteously and faithfully when doing so is going to be costly. When doing so is going to mean having to go against the status quo. When doing so is going to be difficult or just kind of weird. It's interesting that these words, with whom I am well pleased, actually come from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, that, Isaiah, that Old Testament reading that we had, which describes a servant figure who is intent on bringing God's justice to bear into the world. That is his mission in life. And as you read on in Isaiah, you see that the same servant figure, eventually in Isaiah 52 and 53, is the very one who ends up suffering, having to lay down his life, in order to accomplish that mission of bringing God's justice to the world. It's a costly vocation that we receive in baptism. (laughs) And so we need to know that God is pleased, that our identity is not kicked to and fro and shaped by any given set of circumstances, but it is solid and it is rooted in the Father's affirmation of us. This is my beloved son, or daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And as Stacy said, God declares this pleasure in his son and in us before Jesus and before we ever embark upon any sort of ministry or any sort of mission. It's before Jesus announces the reign of the kingdom of God. It's before Jesus heals the sick and the lame. It's before Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins. It's before Jesus raises Lazarus out of the grave. It's before Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. It's before Jesus dies and suffers and rises again that the Father says, I'm pleased with you. Jesus' ministry and our ministries are not meant to be an attempt to gain the approval of the Father. They're meant to emerge out of the security and assurance that God fully knows us, and he fully loves us. And Jesus' life and our life is not meant to be an attempt to earn the Father's love. It's meant to be this emerge out of the knowledge that we are loved. I think this is important because it's all too easy in our lives to live out of a need to be affirmed and approved and loved and constantly seeking it. And this happens in a whole bunch of ways. I mean, just think about how sometimes we post uh, a picture on Facebook. um, Well, I'm imagining this scenario of posting a picture on Facebook (laughs) or, or making a tweet on Instagram, wait, tweet on Twitter, something else on Instagram, whatever it is, and how quickly it is to wait to see how many likes there are of that post. And who exactly likes it? Or this can take other sneakier ways. I found in, uh, when I was a student that it was so easy for me to get in this rhythm af- of affirmation about every four-month cycle, because you start a class and you're told what you're supposed to do, you need to write these papers and do these sorts of things and read these books, and you work really hard and you're a diligent student, you do it. and then you hand in these papers at the end of the term, and the professor grades them, and you get them back, and you're like, "Well, what is the worth of my last four months been?" And it's so easy in, in school to get into this cycle of every four months based on the professor's approval or not, seeing the worth of one's life and what one has done. And there's a whole bunch of ways this can unfold. I mean, for parents, it's easy to seek the approval of your children. And so you can be tempted not to maybe guide them in character formation ways that they need to be formed. For, bo- for employees, it's easy to seek your boss's approval, and so be willing to fudge the numbers or work hours that actually are a detriment to your family. There's a whole bunch of ways in which this can happen. But I think what we're being invited into when we are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a different way of living and operating and relating. Where we're not trying to earn some sort of approval from each other, but we're living out of God's approval of us of his affirmation of us, of his pleasure in us. And that frees us up totally to love and serve people in a totally new way. Like if I'm not seeking your approval as your pastor, (laughs) some of you would like me to do that probably, but if I'm not doing that, then I'm actually not going to do, I'm actually going to be much more interested in doing the sorts of things that are going to be best for us as a church and best for us as a congregation as opposed to just doing the things that, are gonna, that I know are going to make you like me. And this sort of thing shows up in a whole lot of ways. It shows up in our marriages. It shows up in our friendships. It shows up in our relationships with our employees. It shows up in our neighborhoods. It shows up with our parents. You name it, all over the place. You are my beloved son and daughter. Brothers and sisters, you are beloved sons and daughters with whom the Father is well pleased. Live in that, accept that, receive that, know that, and let everything else in your life flow out of it. One of the things I love about this painting is how figurative and thus kind of suggestive it is. The painting is by a woman named Masha Shmakov, great name. I I just discovered her as an artist about two weeks ago. And she lives in Paris. Uh, she is a painter, but she's trained as a theologian and a psychologist. <laughs> so she has this really interesting way of painting in a figurative, suggestive way, which gives enough detail to draw you into the theological depths of the realities of what of which she's depicting, but enough vagueness for you to be drawn into the picture with your own imagination. And she has this dual purpose of kind of revealing what God's on about in the world and revealing who you are at the same time as you engage with these pictures. I wrote to her, luckily because my wife is fluent in French, could do some translation work. And she gave us permission to use a series of her paintings throughout the seven Sundays of Epiphany. So we'll be journeying with her through Epiphany. And she blessed us in that, um, which I'm very thankful for. One of the interesting things about this, fi- this painting is, is the figure the figure on the left is is Jesus, but is the figure on the right John the Baptist? Probably. But could it be God the Father? Could his arm extending over Jesus be the sprinkling of water of John the Baptist, or could it be a hand of blessing of the Father? Then you get the cascading light of the open heavens. You get the gentle and quiet nature of the Spirit's descent You get the serenity and the intimacy and the dynamism of the moment. And then notice how you get Jesus subtly leaning forward. His body is bent as if he is submitting himself to baptism, as if he is leaning into the reality of the Holy Spirit. He's leaning into the reality of the Father's affirmation and pleasure. Brothers and sisters, are you leaning in?